0: You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Katherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, you're going to introduce us to the idea of Gaussian processes.
1: Yeah, Gaussian processes are, are sort of one of my favorite ideas in, uh, in machine learning statistics and it's a bayesian non-parametric regression tool so so that is it's a way to think about doing regression so regression is where we go from features to like real valued uh, outputs so it's a little bit different than classification where instead of say a binary value of cat versus dog we're predicting something like you know height or temperature or something that's continuously valued we like non-parametric models because they can, uh, they can sort of expand their capacity as we get more and more data. And so they're kind of a nice way to reason about sort of models that can grow in complexity as it's warranted. And so uh, they often allow us to not necessarily relax assumptions, but allow us to sort of uh, specify our assumptions in a little bit different way than we would in a parametric model. Non-parametric models have a little bit of a funny name because it's not that they don't have parameters, it's that they have an infinite number of parameters and that in any particular finite data set, we're only going to see some f- uh, finite number of these parameters represented. So the idea of a Gaussian process is to kind of think about uh, the infinite limit of a Bayesian regression model. Uh, they've been around for a long time. They kind of, they originate, you won't be surprised to hear, in the kind of the classic like um, stochastic processes literature. They've existed in uh, the sort of the broader like spatial statistics community for decades. Um, They're sometimes called uh, Krieging, which is kind of a funny funny name, um, because they uh, have been used for sort of interpolation in like um, sort of uh, geostatistics and mining. But then they sort of uh, became popular in machine learning starting in kind of the mid-90s, and then they've become kind of increasingly popular over time as they become useful for lots of different things and people have figured out how to scale them. Um, And then they've sort of become even more interesting in the context of sort of deep learning where we found them useful to do optimization with Bayesian optimization. But then they've also, um, you know, people have also explored the idea of deep Gaussian processes and things like that. The reason they received sort of attention in the 90s is as um, they actually correspond to the kind of functions you would get for interpolation as we take the infinite limit of certain kinds of neural networks. And this is an observation made by, by Radford Neal. Um, and then sort of, I think inspired by that, uh, Carl Rasmussen and Chris Williams uh, then kind of wrote a couple of different papers about using them to do regression uh, in a Bayesian context. And then uh, ultimately they wrote a book that is that is a really fantastic book. It's, I mean, it's one of the, I think it's one of the best sort of machine learning books written uh, called Gaussian processes for machine learning, and in addition to being a great book, it's actually also freely available online as, as PDFs. And and, and the curl maintains a um, a MATLAB toolbox that's that's really useful. So the idea of a Gaussian process is to sort of first start with linear regression. So if we we start out by thinking about the simplest kind of linear regression, where we want to do we want to do a least squares fit to a collection of data with straight lines, and uh, and when we wanna do a least squares fit, it turns out that you can interpret that as a, as a kind of maximum likelihood model under the assumption that the errors are normally distributed. And so then we can find the straight line that, um, that is best according to the principle of maximum likelihood. And once we start sort of thinking about, about maximum likelihood, then it's, it's, it's useful to then think about adding priors or thinking about regularization. And so a very common kind of regularization is to do L2 regularization, so to penalize the weights of this regression model with the squared Euclidean, length of the weights. And and this is expressing the intuition that weights with sort of large magnitude are bad, and so we wanna shrink those weights towards uh, towards zero, something we can express as kind of the distance from zero uh, of the weights or their length. That in the context of regression is often called ridge regression, where you have this additional penalty, in a sort of probabilistic context, we can view this as a maximum a posteriori estimate of the weights where we have this likelihood term arising from the sort of squared errors, and then we have this this prior on the weights that is now a Gaussian prior on the weights, and we're trying to find maximum, uh, the maximum, the map estimate, maximum a posteriori estimate of the weights. Well, once we sort of go down that road, then it's it's natural to ask the next question, which is how would we treat this in a fully Bayesian way? So rather than getting a point estimate where we would just take one weight, uh, you know, one set of weights from uh, after we get some data, then how could we reason instead about the uncertainty associated with those? Instead of finding the map, we would maybe reason about the entire sort of posterior distribution with that prior and that likelihood. And it turns out that with Gaussian priors um, and Gaussian likelihoods, then this is something that's nice in closed form. And you could just do some linear algebra, and everything is sort of hunky-dory. And in fact, you can integrate out those weights. Um, you can make predictions and reason about the function uh, without actually having to represent uh, the weights explicitly. And instead, you can sort of consider all possible sets of weights, and therefore, all possible functions as they relate to the predictions and things that you want to make. And this is a really cool thing, because it, uh, it allows you to sort of make predictions that that in a sense are taking into account the fact that you have imperfect information, and this is one of the ways that we. Some of the reasons we like uh, often Bayesian models is because they they allow us to incorporate uh, not just sort of the noise in the world, but also the sort of the noise in our heads about the, the, the uncertainty associated with our estimates about the world given incomplete data. So you cannot just fit straight lines, but you can actually reason about kind of you can actually integrate over all the possible straight lines. Then. It turns out that you can apply the so-called kernel trick that we've talked about several times uh, before. And this is where, in addition to integrating out the weights, it turns out that you can kind of look at the the kinds of things you want to do. Um, in particular, this kind of comes down to the idea of what's the marginal likelihood over the predictions that we might want to make. And if you kind of look at them, you discover that almost all of the kind of computations you want to do can be framed in terms of inner products between the um, between the different points in the input space. And when you see an algorithm in machine learning that is implemented entirely in terms of inner products, then that presents an opportunity to sort of kernelize things. And to instead of doing the computation in the kind of the feature space that you're handed, you know, you're, you're sort of like X's, to instead apply a bunch of features, potentially an infinite number of features, and then lift the computation and um, and compute those inner products via a kernel function that may be a lot, could be a lot more efficient. And this is, of course, something that's incredibly has been incredibly successful in, um, in, like, support vector machines, but it also works in Bayesian regression. And so, when you take your sort of Bayesian linear regression model and you apply the kernel trick to it, then suddenly you wind up with this very flexible model where you can uh, you get nonlinear functions and kind of interesting bumpy functions um, instead of just straight lines. What's appealing about it is that. Is that now we can instead of reasoning about the functions as just being straight lines or some particular sort of finite set, sort of basis set. And when I say basis, what I mean is you can think of it like um, like polynomials are, are sort of a basis from our point of view where you could say, okay, I'm going to say all my functions are a sum of some constant, some function of x, some function of x squared, and some function of x to the third. And so those functions, one, x, x squared, and x cubed, those are our basis, And so then when we do regression, then what we're trying to do is weight those in different ways, and you could imagine, of course, it can include lots of other functions and lots of other kinds of things that would interact between terms and so on. Then now we have a way to flexibly fit these kind of somewhat more complicated nonlinear models. So a kernel function allows us to express a possibly infinite sequence of those and result in, in sort of very flexible models. And rather than thinking necessarily about that, what basis we like, we can instead think about things like do I want to have functions that are uh, that are differentiable? Do I want them to be twice differentiable? Do I want them to be periodic? What are the sort of noise characteristics I would like to have? Um, if it if it's a multi dimensional problem, should it vary sort of more in one dimension or the other? It allows you to reason about things sort of directly in terms of the function often, uh, rather than thinking about basis sets, which can be a little bit a little bit harder to think about. And so this is a really uh, so this is a really cool thing, and in fact there's it also allows you to take advantage of this kind of large literature on, uh, on kernel functions and turn those into Bayesian regression models. So rather, you know, it's easy to think about sort of bumpy lines, right? Um, and even multi-dimensional sort of bumpy surfaces, but there are kernel functions for things like strings and graphs and all kinds of different, different things where now we can build regression models that are on those objects where you can say, I'm gonna build a function that goes from, uh, you know, a molecule to some value I wanna regress and if and w- I don't have to necessarily think about representing that in a feature space, I can just come up with a good kernel. So this is a, this is cool because it allows us to do lots of different models and compose things together. So that's one kind of view on things. So where you sort of start with, or one view on how to get a Gaussian process, you sort of start with Bayesian linear regression, or even just vanilla r- sort of least squares regression. You kind of like you kind of go up this sequence of of making it Bayesian and then apply the kernel trick. This is a pretty cool sort of view on the world. It, um, <clears throat> but we can also com- connect Gaussian processes to neural networks, and, and here the details in some ways are a little bit more technical. But there's this classic result from uh, the analysis of neural networks, which is that if you make the if you have a, a single-layer neural network, and you, with, that is with one hidden layer, and you make that uh, as long as you make that hidden layer large enough, you can model any continuous function arbitrarily well. And that sounds like kind of a a big result, but in some ways it's not surprising because that's also true of like the Fourier basis and and other kinds of things where you can kind of think back to calculus and uh, remember that, you know, if we have enough polynomials or enough sines and cosines that we can model anything we want, um, as long as we're willing to take a lot of them. And the same is true with neural networks. Um, And that view, in fact, leads us directly to this idea that, that then if we sort of put priors on the weights of those things... Then, and we have enough hidden, hidden units, then we can again view that as essentially a kind of a basis. And then now we're doing, uh, we're building this very large sort of Bayesian model in that in that basis. So that was r- the reason, in some ways, that these these things kind of got their initial attention in machine learning was because of this connection with as kind of non-parametric neural networks. The last way I should say that um, that you can think about a Gaussian process, and this is a, the, kind of the way that that I wind up thinking about them these days is as a kind of generalization of the Gaussian distribution. So everybody knows about the Gaussian, right? Like it's the kind of the, the you know, the distribution you, you see in, in um, as soon as you encounter continuous variables, it's the bell curve. And there's the multivariate generalization of, of this thing that looks more like it's sort of like an actual bell, right, uh, in say two dimensions. And, um, and you can think of them as, as kind of generalized kind of uh, bumps in a high dimensional space. Um, so they put mass everywhere, but it tends to be concentrated, kind of, um, in a shell around the around um, the mode. And so we're often used to thinking about um, about like a multivariate Gaussian distribution as being something that has, again, some you know integer uh, sort of integer indexed set of dimensions. A three-dimensional Gaussian has dimensions one, two, and three. A five-dimensional Gaussian has one, dimensions one, two, three, four, and five. And there's some very nice properties of, of Gaussian distributions that allow you to reason about subsets of those dimensions and marginalize out the ones you can't see. So if I have a five dimensional Gaussian and I want to uh, just focus on dimensions two and three, I can, it turns out I can very easily marginalize away way uh, that is integrate out what's going on in dimensions one, four, and five, um, essentially just by throwing away the, uh, the, the appropriate entries in the covariance and the, and the mean. And the reason that's cool is because then a Gaussian process allows us to think more broadly about what that sort of index set is over dimensions. So that now rather than having just like a five-dimensional Gaussian, we can have an infinite dimensional Gaussian. Which sounds totally crazy, but because we can marginalize away things we don't see, then I can we can reason about how it sort of projects down onto five dimensions. So if I only see five data then i can reason about what the distribution is over those five data integrating out an infinite number of data that i didn't see and that's that's an amazing an amazing property that kind of only is kind of a special property of gaussians and it allows this thing to work and so then so a gaussian process is the then the sort of infinite generalization of the ga- multivariate gaussian distribution where now the index set rather than being and here index set, i just mean the like the list of dimensions rather than being like one two three four five is not like the real line so it could be all possible real numbers or it could be really complicated and weird objects like like proteins or graphs or these other kinds of things we're talking about where there's potentially an infinite number of them but we sort of like treat those as as sort of indices into this uh, into this really big gaussian distribution but again because of the sort of the, the kind of the magical properties of Gaussian distribution, uh, we, can, we can look at finite stuff, and even if there's kind of infinite things behind the scenes, we can still do the calculations we need to do with a finite amount of resources. And that's the kind of the trick under all, uh, for all interesting non-parametric uh, models is the idea that even though our sort of inductive bias, our sort of assumptions about the world correspond to, uh, to infinite objects, that when we only see a finite amount of data, that we only have to do a finite amount of computation. Um, And and Gaussian processes, I think, are sort of a very nice and very elegant example of that.
0: We'll have more information about Gaussian processes and some of the papers and readings on it on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. listener question comes from Bajark Falbo, and he's very interested in K-Means. He writes to us, I'm interested in the effects of data representation on unsupervised learning methods, such as K-Means. What advice can you give on representing data for unsupervised learning? And how would you evaluate qualitatively whether the output of one supervised learning method is superior to another?
1: So this is a really interesting question because unsupervised learning is simultaneously extremely exciting and also totally undefined as a sort of thing that we want to do. That is, there are various criteria we might apply uh, to learn an unsupervised model, uh, or to learn a model in an unsupervised way. Um, and not all of these things are sort of consistent with each other. And much of what we want to discover with unsupervised learning is at the end of the day, uh, we want to find a representation in which it is qualitatively useful. And so that is a lot of the, a lot of times we use unsupervised learning to find structure that is going to allow us to understand the data in a qualitative way. And that's an important function of, of uh, data analysis and unsupervised learning. Uh, but that also means that whether or not the unsupervised learning worked, it's gonna be something that uh, is a function of your brain and your eyeballs. And different people may want different things. And we can see this from the simple fact that, uh, you know, clustering is one possible way to try to find structure and data. What we're doing is finding groups, and, but another possible way we might do unsupervised learning is to try to find low-dimensional structure, low-dimensional continuous structure, and so classic algorithms like principal component analysis, um, but also multidimensional scaling and other kinds, of, uh, other kinds of dimensionality reduction techniques, they say, instead of finding groups, I'm going to find sort of um, surfaces, like low-dimensional surfaces that I can look at. And these are two very different qualitative properties. Uh, that may or may not correspond to anything that sort of the natural phenomena that you're analyzing you're actually have, um, but there are ways for us to try to kind of see what's going on. We also see this in, in, uh, in any clustering algorithm, of course, that you've ever applied, in which there's ambiguity about the granularity of the clusters. Um, if you look closely enough, you'll see that there are, you know, in any given sort of large cluster, there's probably a bunch of little groups. And where's the line between these things? And that, you know, where that line should live is gonna be a property of what you want to do with the data and not necessarily really a property of the data itself. In fact, there are sort of theorems about clustering not really being something you can ever expect to work in general. Um, There's some really sort of interesting work and I I think it's by Shai Ben David, Uh, essentially about showing that if that there's a collection of properties that that you would expect clustering algorithms to have that is that they're invariant to scaling that any point that's in one cluster uh, if you move it closer to the other data should sort of stay within that cluster and so on we could kind of write down a set of desiderata each of which seems totally legitimate and desirable for a uh, uh, for a clustering algorithm and yet you can. He then goes on to prove that uh, that they are not consistent with each other, uh, and and so um, I hope I got the of that right. But uh, uh, so clustering is sort of something that um, that is is just a, it's at the end of the day a qualitative enterprise, and and you you kind of have to hope it hope it works. And then you can also think of this this whole sort of unsupervised learning world through the lens of, um, you can look at it through the lens of density estimation, where one of the core ways we can think about whether or not a an unsupervised learning procedure is working is how well it predicts data that you've never seen before. So you could imagine, you know, you have these little clusters, and we think those clusters correspond to sort of have some kind of prototypical kind of distribution over what those objects might be. And then the you know and then this group of data there are these, these clusters of data or are sort of a mixture over those and this is a very common way to think about uh to think about unsupervised learning in particular it corresponds to a probabilistic interpretation of uh of like k-means so this is a very you know natural thing to do and density estimation is appealing because it gives us a very specific sort of criterion for when things work uh, but at the end of the day density estimation is also ill-posed it's it's a problem that really doesn't make sense without pretty strong assumptions about the kind of the smoothness of the underlying density and you can kind of see that by thinking you know if we have a you know little clusters of data at one extreme we could uh, build a model that fit the data very well by uh, you know by putting sort of little delta functions on each one of the data we've seen before uh, and we could also at the other extreme you know have a big uniform distribution over the entire space and the only thing sort of Bridging these is, is assumptions about how smooth, you know, how smooth the world is, you know, what our prior is, what our sort of inductive bias is. And this should also make you skeptical about any uh, any procedure that somebody tells you for density estimation or unsupervised learning that is not making assumptions because that's uh, that's not not possible. You know, you have to be, just like anything else, you have to be very clear about what it is that you want. And if what you want is to be able to understand things, then you're in this regime where rather than thinking of it as unsupervised learning, Maybe you should be thinking of it as exploratory data analysis. And exploratory data analysis shares many of the same tools, but it ultimately has different goals. You're trying to understand what's going on. Um, and that may mean re- re-representing the data. It may mean scaling it in different ways and trying a you know a bag of different algorithms um, before you, you sort of land on something that you feel like gives you the insights that you want to have.
0: If you've got a question for Talking Machines, tweet us at... T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S, or write to us at the talking machines at gmail.com. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Ilya Sutskever. He used to be at Google, and now he's heading up research at OpenAI. And since we've had him on the show previously, we didn't ask him on the first question, we ask everybody. Instead, we asked him to talk about OpenAI. What is it, and what's he going to be doing there?
2: Yeah, so OpenAI is is a non-profit AI research institute. Our goal is to advance artificial intelligence in a way that will most likely benefit humanity as a whole without the need to generate financial returns. It is a new kind of research lab which doesn't have the structural constraints of existing labs. So for example, academia provides a lot of freedom, but it also has a lot of, a lot of wrong incentives and issues. For example, professors must spend a significant portion of their time raising money, even professors in machine learning, in contrast, industrial research labs are not constrained by a lack of res- by resources, but they're closed off and they make it hard to, for them to collaborate with researchers outs- outside the organization. Finally, as AI, as full human-level AI, which, is, which, w- which, may, which might be invented in our lifetimes, is going to have a big impact, we want to think seriously about this impact and about the ways in which our research can affect it. And in fact, we simply, Acknowledge that thinking about these issues is important, and that's a view that's not yet widely accepted in the broader machine learning community.
0: So, how does being a nonprofit change the work that you're going to do? Does it change the relationships that you can have, or or the questions that you can ask?
2: So, in the the, the way the way it will work is that in many ways our work will be similar because we will also be um, developing um, developing new algorithms. We'll be writing code and testing it and writing papers. The The way being non-profit will affect us in the near term is that it will allow us to collaborate um, with other researchers and research groups. And the reason that's uh, that's that's a good thing is because there are many very strong research groups in the world and it would be very desirable to benefit from the knowledge and experience. And this is made possible because we do not generally intend to patent our work. And the same is even true about industrial research labs the reason industrial research labs don't like to collaborate with universities or it's hard for them to do that is because if an industrial research lab chooses to patent something then the university wants a piece of that as well and we feel that but if once, once industrial research labs will believe that we will definitely not sue them for collaborating with them it may be possible for us to work with them as well so we might find us in a position where we can work with absolutely everyone in the field
0: that's a pretty revolutionary idea not Patenting your work.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's one of the benefits of being a nonprofit.
0: So, what questions are you most interested in asking? What do you want to work on here?
2: Broadly speaking, we're interested in working on research that will most that will most directly improve the fundamental capabilities of our of, of machine learning algorithms. So, for example, the kind of things we're interested in is to make unsupervised learning algorithms actually work, or perhaps train better generative models, better algorithms for continuous control in robotics, neural nets that can learn from, um, th- new m- develop models that can learn algorithms from, exper- from examples and understand language better. Or for example, develop algorithms that can benefit from li- from a lifetime of an experience. These are the kind of technical questions that we're interested in. And we also plan to think about questions related to how AI will be used. And if we plan to do it more as the technology becomes more capable.
0: Hmm. So so tell me about the team that you've put together. Where do they come from? How did you find them?
2: Yeah. So our team consists of several recent PhDs in machine learning and a number of experienced engineers. So all our machine learning experts are quite well-known in the community and they've already written a number of interesting papers. One feature of our team is that on the science side, we all specialize in deep learning. and We chose deep learning as the core of OpenAI, because of our belief that deep learning techniques will be an important part in all future AI algorithms. There are two reasons we think so. The, one the main reason is that it seems like with deep learning, there is what, seems that is what appears to be a single algorithm that can solve so many different problems. So it feels, it feels so general and domain agnostic that it seems pretty likely that it will be important in the future. And and one one example of this is already with um, reinforcement learning algorithms that use deep learning as a black box subroutine.
0: Mm -hmm. So so a lot of the progress on on these types of questions, deep learning questions, have come from institutions that have a lot of infrastructure already set up, lots of resources in place. How how do you plan to address that in a, a very young and new organization? Are you just going to spin up quickly or do you have a different approach entirely?
2: So these are very good questions and the answer to this is that while we are a a small young organization, we do have significant resources at our disposal as well. For example, computing is provided by generous support from Amazon and so we will will also have access to significant computing resources. I think a more important question is access to data. There are two sides to the data question. The first side to the data question is that, of course, data sets and tasks are in some sense, they are the questions that are asked in our field. And then as, scient- as then as researchers work on answering these questions, progress is being made. At present, but not necessarily in the future, at present, it is the case that one can do very good machine learning research using entirely publicly available data sets. It is still the case that uh, virtually every single important paper used data sets that were publicly available. It doesn't mean that constructing new data sets is not important, and in fact we plan to do that whenever we feel that doing that will allow us to ask a new and a unique question. Another another point to notice is that the two most influential data sets, which is ImageNet and Atari, they were both created by small organizations which did not have significant resources. So it really does seem that one can go really far using even modest amount of resources, and lucky for us we have more than modest amounts of resources.
0: Fantastic. So, what do you see as the future between the relationship in the relationship between academia, industry, and other nonprofits like OpenAI that may
2: occur? I think that the relationships between all these organizations will tighten. The field is growing very quickly, and there's a lot of mileage, there's a lot of benefit to um, to be had from working with people in other organizations. So I think what will happen is that universities will get attached, will have closer connections to specific companies, and specific companies will have closer connections to universities for perhaps for reasons such as to get more direct, to get interns entrance more easily, or to get access. I think we will see more of that. And I think nonprofits like OpenAI, they will cl- work closely with everyone, or as with, with more with m- more and more with more and more researchers in the field. I think that's probably what will happen. But overall I think we'll see a tightening because there are because there is mutual benefit to be had from these relationships.
0: So uh, in in the open letter that's up on the OpenAI website right now, uh, there's there's a part of it that I found particularly interesting, which says it's it's hard to fathom how much human-level AI could benefit society, and it's equally hard to imagine how it could damage society if built or used incorrectly. So, what are the questions that we should what are the reasonable questions that we should be thinking about in terms of safety now? Are there any questions that we can even answer about AI and safety at this moment?
2: So this is a very good question, and let, let, let me try to answer it. So I think, many, m- I think, and many people think that full human level AI, we you're talking about a system that can do anything a human can, this kind of system which might perhaps be invented in, in some number of decades, which will be the number of days, some number of decades, will obviously have an <coughs> a huge inconceivable impact on society. That's obvious. And when a technology will predictably have as much impact, it is, you know, there is nothing to lose from starting to think about the nature of this impact, how it will look like, and how will this technology be, how will technology be used, how will it affect society, and also whether there is any research that can be done today that will make this impact be more like the kind of impact we want. Now, the question of safety really boils down to this. So, if you, so it is, it is already possible, if you take a look at our neural networks, for example, that recognize images, they're doing a pretty good job, but once in a while they make errors, which are hard to come to to uh, understand where they come from. So, for example, um, I have the so the I, I use Google Photo Search to index my own photos, and it's a really great it's a really great product, and I really love it. And I search my photos all the time, but sometimes and it's really accurate almost all the times. But sometimes I'll look for I'll search for a photo of a dog, let's say, and it will find a photo where it's really clearly not a dog. You know, why, why does it make this mistake? Now, you could say, well, who cares? It's just object recognition, and I agree. But if you look down the line, what you'll see is that right now, we're just, we just seeing the beginning of machine learning research we are creating agents. Like, for example, the Atari work of DeepMind or the robotics work of Berkeley where you're building a neural network that learns to control something which interacts with the world. At present, their own cost functions, their cost functions are, are s- manually specified, but it is pretty likely that their cost functions will not always be specified. So for example, it seems likely that eventually we will be building robots whose cost functions will be learned from demonstration or from watching a YouTube video or from uh, the interpretation of natural text. And that, uh, But now once, once you're in this situation and suddenly you have a cost function, let's, say you have a, let's, like, let's take the example of a cost function which is the interpretation of natural text. You have some machine learning model, some neural network that looked at human text and produced a cost function. So now we no longer know exactly what this cost function is, it's whatever the neural network produced. And this, or for, or for a g- different example, you watch a lot of YouTube videos to try to understand what people are trying to do and figure out their cost functions from that. And these, these kind of things right now, I should say, cl- um, q- clarify, right now this is not something that can be done at all, but it will be possible to build these things eventually, because you cannot have c- truly complex behavior. I think that, t- so it seems likely that truly complex behavior will require sophisticated cost functions. And so now, so now you have these really complicated cost functions which are difficult to understand, and now you have a physical robot or some kind of a software system which tries to optimize this cost function. And I think that this, this is the kind of, these are the kind of scenarios that could be relevant for AI safety questions. Now once you have a system like this, What do you need to do to be reasonably certain that it will do what you want it to do? I would say, and right now, right now, because in machine machine learning research, we don't really work on such systems, these questions seem a little bit premature. But I think, but once we start building reinforcement learning systems where you do learn the cost function, I think this question will become much more sharply in focus. And of course, it would also be nice to do theoretical research, but it's really not clear to me how it could be done
0: so right now we have the opportunity to to understand the fundamentals the basics really explore those and then apply them later as the research continues and grows and is able to create more powerful systems
2: so that would be that would be the ideal case definitely i feel i i think that it's worth trying to do that i think it may also be hard to do because it seems like it seems that we have such a hard time imagining how these future systems will look like we can speak in general terms yes there will be a cost function most likely but how exactly will it be optimized this it's it's a little hard it's a little hard to predict because if you could predict it we could just go ahead and build the systems already
0: right. so how will open ai be sharing its research will you have a uh, website where you release things or are you going to put papers up on archive are you going to engage in sort of yeah. the academic Um, way of sharing information or do you have a different way?
2: Yeah, so definitely the traditional ways of of, of sharing, of disseminating research are pretty good and they work really well. But I think think it will be more on uh, a case-by-case basis, for example, if we feel that it's worthwhile, for example, to make some kind of a server to which people could submit various things and then the server will do a lot of work. If such a thing will be useful, we'll build that. We are not closing the door to anything. Whatever makes the most sense, we will do it.
0: Ilya Seskeber, head of research at OpenAI.
1: You know, I had the great pleasure of overlapping with with Ilya when I was at the University of Toronto. He was a grad student and I was a postdoc. And, you know, Ilya is such a great choice to, to lead this effort because he's so intensely uh, invested in the question of how to solve AI. And he's, he's just a... Uh, he's incredibly enthusiastic and he i would remember him sort of like walking into my office every day with new ideas um and and then you know overnight exploring all of these ideas and and uh you know uh invalidating some and validating others he's just he's I, I can't think of anybody with the kind of the energy for the problem of ai that, that ilia has so he couldn't uh you know, OpenAI couldn't have done better than to than to bring him in to run this thing.
0: Yeah, they're well poised to be putting out some fascinating stuff. So that's it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Join us next episode.